Rises Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Permack. On today's show, the U.S. and France reach an internet tax truce and how an airline failure could tank a country's entire economy. But first, opioids and Oklahoma. So yesterday, an Oklahoma judge found Johnson & Johnson responsible for fueling the state's opioid epidemic, which is estimated to have led to over 6,000 deaths since the year 2000. Now, no one from Johnson & Johnson is going to jail, but the company will need to pay $572 million in damages. Why it matters is that this is the first time ever that a drug maker has been held liable in an opioids case, and it sets the stage for the first federal opioids trial, which is set to take place this fall in Ohio, and the defendants there include a large group of manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies. Before this, we had simply seen out-of-court settlements, including a couple in Oklahoma. Now, Johnson Johnson has already vowed to appeal, but that's probably more about not wanting to set precedent than it is about the $572 million fine. That amount may help Oklahoma fund lots of treatment centers, but it's less than 4% of Johnson & Johnson's annual profits and a pittance compared to the $17 billion that Oklahoma's attorney general had asked for. It's also way less than the two billion or so that Wall Street had expected, which is why Johnson & Johnson's stock actually rose after the verdict and also rising were other drug makers who were on the hook potentially in Ohio. So the big question now is if the Oklahoma judge has set basically a market rate or if he's an outlier, maybe just a toe in the water before the tsunami of penalties to come. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios healthcare business reporter Bob Herman. But first, this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Axios healthcare business reporter Bob Herman. Let's start here at the beginning, I guess. What exactly was Johnson & Johnson accused of doing by Oklahoma prosecutors? A judge issued a verdict yesterday that basically said that Johnson & Johnson should be held liable for its role in fueling the opioid crisis. In particular, it said Johnson & Johnson created a public nuisance by spreading misleading and deceptive marketing throughout the state that its opioids were safe and effective when, in fact, they you know, weren't always safe and effective. So Johnson Johnson has been accused of a public nuisance. Reading the judge's ruling, there seem to be two things. There seems to be the marketing that Johnson Johnson did, which was kind of the top line thing. But there's also mentioned the fact that Johnson Johnson actually, in many cases, is producing the underlying opium, I guess, the, the actual ingredient, not just for their own product, but for others. So they're kind of, somebody called them a kingpin kind of in Oklahoma of the stuff. Right. Leading the Oklahoma's case was their attorney general, Mike Hunter. And he called Johnson the kingpin because, like you said, they actually made the raw narcotics in Tasmania, and those were supplied to Purdue and other prominent opioid manufacturers. That just kind of set up the the backdrop for kind of how Johnson Johnson operated. The public nuisance law was only related to the opioid that Johnson Johnson had promoted and sold. It has since gotten out of the opioid business. It, It sold up a darn thing off a few years ago, as well as the narcotics business. But the public nuisance law relates to its marketing. But you're absolutely right. Johnson Johnson, they helped grow the opium poppy. And, and, uh, you know, without that, prescription opioids couldn't exist. One of the reasons this is such a big deal is this is the first actual verdict, not by a jury, by a judge, but the actual verdict. In Oklahoma, for example, there had already been a couple settlements with a couple other companies. But again, those didn't go to court. Those were pre-court settlements. 
does Oklahoma and, and what prosecutors and the attorney general did there, does it set some sort of map for other attorneys general and other states to follow? Yeah, I think that's why everyone was watching this Oklahoma case so closely is what precedent does this set for any other future rulings or verdicts or settlements that come down the road? And the fact that Johnson and Johnson took this on, you know, they fought it. They felt pretty comfortable in their defense, but uh, obviously that's time consuming and it's costly in its own right. So I think, you know, looking ahead, how do other states view this? You know, obviously they they can get billions from these companies. There's no question about that. Uh, Earlier this month, drug distributors, Bloomberg reported, made an opening offer of $10 billion in the national opioid lawsuit. I think it's very apparent that this is the scale of it is tens of billions of dollars, what everyone could be settled for or held liable for. But it really comes down to whether everyone agrees with what this judge in Oklahoma said, whether they think it's public nuisance or whether they think it's even further than that. It comes down to whether these companies just want to sell it and pay it off as almost the cost of doing business or whether they want to fight it like Johnson & Johnson. And we'll find out in the fall whether that's the case. But I, I think states know that they can recoup a hefty amount of money, but it also is it enough to abate the opioid crisis? There's two pieces, right? There's the piece of the costs to the state, right? And, and look, thousands of deaths and, and treatment, et cetera, as you said, and then that's where some of this money is actually supposed to go. But there's also the punishment piece here, right, for the companies themselves. And Johnson Johnson stock yesterday after this verdict goes up, they have to pay over half a billion dollars, but the stock goes up because you said prosecutors were asking for 17 billion expectations were that they were maybe going to get 2 billion it comes in at 572 million. I wonder, though, as you say, there are lots of other lawsuits pending, including against Johnson and Johnson elsewhere. Did the markets get this wrong? In other words, did they see this and say, oh, this came in low, but not fully appreciate that this is just the beginning here? Well, I mean, the fact that Johnson and Johnson was expected, a lot of Wall Street expected Johnson and Johnson to pay somewhere between one and two billion in just the Oklahoma case. The fact that it came in at a half or a quarter of that, I think. Wall Street's like, okay, maybe this isn't as bad as maybe we thought. I think everyone is fully aware about the national opioid lawsuit in Ohio, and that will be far costlier if that goes to trial or if that's settled. So I don't know that they got it wrong. I think that they're just happy that the judge didn't put a higher price tag on it. I think that number does deserve a little bit of context. That number is just for one year of opioid crisis abatement. The judge said Oklahoma didn't provide enough evidence that, they, that it should be more than that. So there's still a chance that this number could be very, very large, and maybe Wall Street isn't prepared for that, just how large it could be. But I think they're satisfied that this is something that Johnson Johnson can pay, no problem. This is couch cushion money for them. Right. From your perspective, does this settlement then create any change in behavior? Now, obviously, when it comes specifically to opioids in Oklahoma, Johnson Johnson's marketing practices will change. But I mean, you know, these companies, these big drug companies, are they also breathing a giant sigh of relief and basically saying, no worries here. Next time something comes down the pike, we'll handle it just like this. Well, I mean, for Johnson Johnson, they're they're pretty much out of the opioids business, more or less. But the other companies, they've been under the gun for several years now. There's been convictions leading back to a decade ago. They know that states and the public are getting pretty outraged about this. But at the end of the day, if, if no individual people are going to be sent to prison, and if they know that they could just pay a hefty fine that's still within the, the bounds of what they're able to pay, it's debatable about you know how much behavior will change. I, I think that's an unanswered question. I think the, the promotion of opioids has changed drastically, but will things turn on a dime? That's a lot harder to say. Thank you to Bob Herman, who wrote about the J&J verdict this morning in the Axios Vitals newsletter, which you can get at signup.axios.com. My final two right after this. 
Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is France, where it appears that Emmanuel Macron and Donald Trump have found common ground over a new French law that would have put a 3% surtax on internet companies for all of their French revenue. The move had caused Trump to threaten tariff action against France, uh, including at one point a threat of putting tariffs on French wine. But Macron said at the G7 that the two leaders have reached a deal whereby big internet companies that pay the tax will now be able to deduct those payments under terms of a new international national internet taxation scheme, which is expected to be finalized next year. Why it matters is that countries like France are still trying to figure out how to solve the complicated problem of taxing multinational internet companies like Amazon and Facebook, which do huge business in their countries without having much of an on-the-ground presence, which is the traditional prerequisite for taxation. And finally this morning, there are increased recessionary concerns in Iceland, but not because of pedestrian things like trade wars or decreased productivity. Instead, Iceland is suffering because it's low-cost airline, Wow Air, shut down unexpectedly in March, thus putting an enormous dent in the country's tourism industry. And for Iceland, this is no small thing. Wow launched in 2012, at which time Iceland only had a few hundred thousand visitors per year. But by 2018, that number was 2.3 million. And many in the North Atlantic nation credit Wow with helping to revive the Icelandic economy after its banking system collapsed during the Great Recession. But the numbers, the tourism numbers this year are down 16% already and down 20% in terms of American tourists, who are considered more free spending than some of their European peers. Moreover, fewer flights mean fewer opportunities to export things like fish. But at least not everyone there is unhappy. One local Icelandic tour guide tells New York Times, quote, when the people who are coming are more about getting Instagram posts and everyone goes to the same spots, then it's overcrowded. Now we have a chance to do things properly. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And please be sure to leave us a review. Have a great International Lottery Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.